Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Monday, December 7th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Day one of the winter meetings, at least it technically is on the calendar, even though the winter meetings <laughs> are happening virtually this year. Uh, can't wait to have Don't even seem beers. like they're happening this year. <laughs> no, uh, even the, the manager sessions are pushed back a week, and the activity has been pretty limited. Although, we were getting ready to do the show a couple hours ago, and we were both sort of lamenting the lack of news in the last couple of days. And we did get a trade, uh, but surprising trade too. So we'll talk about what happened. It was a Reds-Angels deal that sent Rysel Iglesias to Anaheim. And we've got some long-term questions that uh, people have been wondering about. We're going to look at some characteristics of young players that we think age well over time. We've got a question in the mailbag about Dustin May that we'll get to. Uh, so we'll break it all down. And you know what? Hopefully more news will happen over the course of this hour or so. But even if it doesn't, we got something. We got one. We got one deal on day one of the winter meetings. As I mentioned, Rysel Iglesias, now an angel it's interesting because the Reds non-tendered Archie Bradley, so they have lost two key pieces from the bullpen from the end of last season. They've shaved some payroll in the process. Noe Ramirez and a player to be named later was the return. I tried to find something interesting about Ramirez, you know, and I came up with absolutely nothing <laughs> other than to say he throws three pitches and he throws three pitches. And maybe if you're doing the bullpen arms on the clock sort of thing like he's kind of right-handed like a little bit lower slot but it it doesn't really get me excited at all no no he throws 88 i i think he's just cheaper he's a million dollars and rysel iglesias was over nine um and i think that's that's really most of it i don't think that they can necessarily slot noe ramirez in at closer he's not somebody back-end guy but there's a great piece from Jason Stark about how the central is basically everybody's punting all of a sudden and that most of the non-tenders came from the central. Most of the non-tender money came from the central that maybe the central was more affected by the lack of fans in their seats because their TV deals aren't necessarily as good as they are in the East and West coast. Um, and so I, like we, we get into these places where I don't know, I don't know financially like how bad the reds are off. And I actually don't even know if, you know the the knee jerk reaction is oh they're they're rebuilding now they they've given up they're they're jettisoning pieces, um, and maybe that's true but uh, they need a shortstop and maybe they can actually do that thing that every man, general manager tries to pretend they or tries to say they want to do which is get younger and more flexible at the same time I mean if you think if they end up using this money for Haseong Kim they get a twenty five year old shortstop right. Um, and they make a bet on their player development system, their Kyle Bodie driveline, what uh, driveline mid, mid east, <laughs> mid east. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to describe that place. Um, but uh, driveline <laughs> not west. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, uh, uh, they're making a bet on Kyle and, and the group to, to produce relievers because I think that's the number one thing that a good pitching development program can do is produce relievers. Um, you know, starters are just uh, a little bit more of a complete package where you have to have three, four pitches and a lot of things have to go right and you have to have command. And, uh, you know, I think that um, there's not as much of a science for that. It's a lot of luck. You know, Jacob deGrom looks like, you know, the most finished product we've got. And it took a Frank Viola curveball. Uh, it took a Johan Santana changeup grip. 
It took a Dan Worthen slider. I mean, it took three, four different people to to make Jake Degrom who Jake Degrom is today. So um, I I could see it working out. You know, like Lucas Sims, my favorite for the closer role there. You know, generally teams use lefty closers less often. I mean, do you, do you think Amir Garrett runs with it? Or I mean, that's obviously the two. And with those two, you already have pretty good back end arms. And if you think Tajay Antone is not going to make the starting rotation. He makes a pretty good reliever, and now all of a sudden, maybe you have what you need, and you don't need to pay seventeen million dollars for it. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be the the guy that defends teams for shedding payroll, but if yeah, they're just exactly. reallocating resources, I think you could say that the Reds' bullpen depth last season was a strength. They can lean into that. They can basically take the money they were going to spend on Iglesias plus someone like Bradley and and put it on a shortstop. That does all sort of check out in my mind. I'm not going to get irate about that. Garrett is the guy that I had actually ranked at the bottom of my reliever list even when we thought Iglesias was going to be on this team because I thought he was slightly more interesting, but you absolutely have a case for Lucas Sims uh, as a short-term sort of draft-and-hold target. Uh, Teams are, as you mentioned, reluctant to use lefties as closers in some instances, but it doesn't seem like it's that difficult to get a lefty, and if we still have the three-batter minimum rule, you know, it's use your best reliever when you need to use your best reliever. It's not really uh, the same sort of lefty specialist arrangement that it would have been. So I look at those two guys, Lucas Sims' walk rate last year, still uh, up in that 10% range, but misses enough bats. He's actually a lot like Trevor May, actually, you know, in terms of a guy we were excited about and hoping he'd get a closer opportunity somewhere. So I think wherever you've got Trevor May ranked, Lucas Sims is probably right in that same range until we get further details. Is there any underlying skill for either one of them that gives you any pause? I mean, I mentioned the walk rate with Sims, but you look at at Garrett, he's kind of the same. 10.1% walk rate last year. It's been higher at points in the past. You know, a little bit of a home run issue for Garrett as well. Uh, But both of those guys seem capable if they get to claim the job as their own. Yeah, it almost feels like a 50-50 split for me. Both these guys have years where the command is just not there. And you're kind of, you know, which one is going to have the command next year is going to have most of the saves, I think. Yeah. You know, you just, you look at Sims' home run rate and you look at Garrett's walk rate and they kind of just go from year to year, you know. Um, Garrett has had two full seasons in the major leagues with a walk rate that starts with five. It's in, you know, five plus per nine. So I think if he does that again next year, it might become a little bit untenable in a closer's role. But I also think that with the left, the fact that they're lefty righty, um, and that this team seems to be trying to push itself into the new millennia, um, in terms of strategy on the field, I could see them both getting saves. Yeah, maybe it is just playing the matchups and letting both guys make a run at at fifteen or so saves and. Uh, letting the situation dictate who actually gets those opportunities. It, it's also interesting that they made that small trade with the Rockies. Robert Stevenson, who I think would have been part of this conversation, is in Colorado now, so that's one fewer holdover option. You mentioned TJ Antone going to compete for a starting rotation spot, especially if they're going to go cheap and not add pitching this winter. He's absolutely in the mix for that fit starter spot. Uh, they want to start Michael Lorenzen, potentially, too, which I still don't quite see, but... Uh, is there anything you look at with Lorenzen that makes you believe that a move to the rotation could actually work for him? Yeah, there was a fairly large change in uh, sort of pitching mix, pitching selection um, 
from Lorenzen last year where uh, he kind of upped the slider usage to the most he's ever done, uh, really reduced the sinker usage, and became a fastball three-breaking ball guy with a changeup. He throws 17% of the time. In fact, when you look at it, it kind of looks like a starter's arsenal. And he has multiple pitches he can get outs with. The question I think maybe might be like his fastball is not very good. So it's kind of straightish. So maybe it works out of the bullpen to some regards at 97. But what's he going to sit when he uh, comes out of the rotation? And I, and I can't say that like his reliever numbers stand out as something that could be reduced and be better. You know what I mean? Like he hasn't been that great of a reliever. So I don't assume that he's going to be a great starter. It usually doesn't work backwards that way. Even with that deep mix of pitches, it's like, well, he should have been lights out as a reliever. He was good in 2019. That was kind of the easily the best year we've seen from him in the last three. Uh, you go back to 2016, he had some success that year as well. It's kind of surprising to see the amount of inconsistency. But you know, two breaking balls, a changeup. If he sits 94 as a starter and leans on the fastball a lot less, maybe he ends up being... A four low fours ERA guy like that seems like the best case scenario for him as a starter, as currently constructed, barring a big change with the heater. Yeah, I've seen some excitement for Lorenzen, and I don't know. Sometimes you have to kind of back up and and remember, you know, remember the projections. You know, allow yourself to get excited about a player within a range, but remember that projections are usually the anchor for that. Um, in terms of his four seam at 97 mile an hour, good, no rise above average, just a little bit more wiggle than average, but his sinker who has a lot more wiggle than average, he's just gone away from. So it's not like he, he values that so much, uh, change looks like a straight change. The slider is good. The cutter is okay. All kind of comes together as like, maybe it could work. I don't know why it would necessarily work better. As a starter, though, you know, yeah. So I, I want to put, I'll put him in that um, sort of hundred esque range, but I'd rather have a guy like Dane Dunning. Um, I'd rather have a guy like Justice Sheffield. I think so. He's going to be behind that group. As far as Iglesias goes, I had him fourth among relievers in the initial set of rankings. No reason to really move him up with the change in team, but I do think this fills uh, an area of need for the Angels. I mean, you talk about teams that have struggled in the bullpen for the last few years. Hansel Robles was a nice story in 2019. The 2020 chapter of that book was um, unfortunately not as fun as the 2019 chapter. So I think Iglesias can continue to do what he's done to this point. Like I, I believe in the skills there, and I think as we go around and look through the second-tier closers this year, there's less certainty than usual even in that range because you have a few younger guys like James Karinchak and, and even Nick Anderson who pitched really well throughout most of 2020 where you look and say, I'm not even sure those guys are the guys. Like Based on skills, they belong in the top 10, but based on opportunity, they might not have any business being in the top 10 among relievers. Plus the industry-wide 
um, assault on our game. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Just the industry-wide noise and ins- uncertainty surrounding any closer's role in any bullpen and any likelihood that any person gets even 75% of their team's saves chances <laughs> at this point. I mean, I just think it's inevitable that everyone's going the Mike Shanahan way. Um, I don't actually see the personnel to Mike Shanahan at, you know, there was, uh, Meyer, Myers? Mayers? Mayers, yeah. Mayers, who looked like he'd, he'd done something good last year, but also was a bit of a pop-up, um, late career type situation where, um, I feel like it could just as easily go away. I mean, he he had a strikeout rate last year of 36%. His high before that was 21. So, I mean, obviously he's he's changed something about his pitch mix and doesn't use his fastball as much anymore and went to a cutter much more often. But um, I think it's better to have him and Iglesias, and I don't think that, um, you know, Mayers would be like the incumbent or anything. He would just, now he's their, part of their, their late-inning group. And, you know, Butchery is pretty good, but, you know, he got a couple chances and didn't quite take advantage. So I think I'd put Butchery in the second seat now um, and then Mayers and Pena right behind him. Yeah, I think they're still probably a good reliever or two away from having a playoff caliber bullpen. But the fact that they went out and added some payroll and made this move is a much needed upgrade. It might find somebody in spring, too, right? Yep. You know, you, you, you do some minor league invites uh you bring some guys up from the minors and uh if they don't make it as a you know it's becoming time for like someone like uh, Berea to either be a starter reliever and maybe if he's a full-time reliever um they get a little bit more out of him or something and you know jake faria is still sitting there so um something uh something could happen there that that gives them some depth and, and makes it work out it's way better to have iglesias at the top of that bullpen um and now I just see them as needing a couple arms. Then it almost doesn't. It doesn't. It's not. You know, almost don't have to say what kind. I mean, I I, I think they need a starter um, or two. But um, you know, they could play this a couple different ways. No, they look like they're spending a bit at a time when a lot of other teams are going the other direction. So uh, for the new GM Perry Manassian, it's at least uh, a step in the right direction as he tries to get Mike Trout back into the postseason. You know, it'd be a really interesting signing for them. Tomoyuki Sagana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be interesting. There, there's like a world in which like Sagano and Otani like uh, become like a pretty lights out, you know, duo at the top of rotation. Interesting for uh, marketing purposes. One of the only ways to get um, a potential top of the rotation arm right now with just money um and not having to spend you know 35 million dollars in one year or 30 million dollars in one year like Trevor Bauer wants you to I do think the the plan for Otani is still one of the great unknowns for mm-hmm. 2021 maybe they have a roadmap that they've charted out maybe they actually think he will be a two-way player still but they have to have more contingency plans in place at this point including a move to the bullpen including not being a two-way player anymore like I think we're getting closer to a longer-term decision with how Otani is going to be handled. You know, the command was brutal in the couple starts that we were able to see from him in 2020. It seems like rehabbing as a two-way player had a pretty negative impact on him as a hitter because what we saw from him as a hitter upon arrival was a guy that hitting full-time, to me, there was a first-round ceiling talent-wise in his bat because you had power, you had speed, 
He had the ability to hit for some average to a legitimate middle-of-the-order run producer who helps all five categories. He wasn't that guy at the plate in the shortened season either. Uh, I do think we've talked about all the different scenarios, different types of leagues where Otani becomes more valuable, like leagues with daily moves, and then leagues with weekly moves where he becomes less valuable. I, I hope we get clarity before spring training, but I don't think we're going to be that lucky. No. Now, uh, with a little bit of reduced expectations and, and those numbers from 2020 baked in, the projections have him kind of looking almost like Tommy Pham. Not a bad player, but you know, not Babe Ruth from Japan either. Yeah, and if he doesn't start, then he's uh, becomes a, a closer. A closer plus Tommy Pham in one roster spot, though. Still pretty useful. The format is key, though. In leagues with weekly moves where you can't, manipulate him between hitting and pitching he takes a pretty big hit adp in early nfbc drafts is 228 for shohei otani so definitely a discount but i think that's one of the formats where it's pretty difficult to maximize his utility the other news item i wanted to get to is Gio urshela he had a bone chip removed from his right elbow Uh, the estimate is a three-month recovery so he should be pretty much back to normal by early march a little after spring training begins if everything is running on time and maybe just ahead of spring training if, and if things end up being slightly delayed. Uh, but I think Urshela is an interesting player because, as I mentioned at the top, we're going to talk about young players who have characteristics that we think would age well. And I think a guy like Urshela is the opposite of that. Like He didn't have that. He was the kind of player that had to bounce around between a couple of teams before getting another clear opportunity. He was blocked in a big way in Cleveland, but I keep looking at him and I think for the most part, he showed us that what happened in 2019 wasn't a fluke at all. I mean, he bumped up the exit velo a little bit, held the the launch angle and barrel rates right around where they were during the breakout season, even cut the K rate a bit and drew more walks. I mean, the encore was actually a notch better than the breakout in some ways. So he looks like the kind of guy that sort of defies aging curves and, and often surprises a lot of us. And it's it's a tip of the cap again to the Yankees for player development. They seem to do this really well. Uh, but I do think players like Urshela are guys who are undervalued for a few years in the fantasy community before people finally accept that they've just reached this new level that nobody really had previously forecasted yeah i i there's just a couple just a couple weird things about him which is that um you know the barrel rate's not very good at six percent you know average quote-unquote average is 4.5 or whatever but the median's a little bit higher than that so it's it's fairly average in terms of uh power but you know i guess a projection for 20 homers at this point is average (laughs) Mm -hmm. um you know he's fairly close to average power and with the contact rate the batting average has been good so that's part of why he's good the other thing that is weird for me is that by outs above average he is a below average fielder and we've always had this sort of uzr fueled and maybe eye test fueled uh feeling that he's a, a plus defender my question just is if if he is, uh, and if and does that matter? I mean, I think it might matter a little bit if DJ LeMayhew and Miguel Andujar make the team out of spring training next year. There's the slightest whiff, or if they sign a shortstop, move Torres to second, and sign 
um, uh, DJ uh, and signed DJ Mayhew. Um, you know, if his defense is not that good and the bat takes any step backward, I mean, it's just one of those things where it's like um, just a crowded ass team. Yeah, you know, and and to me, a lot of times people say in fantasy we overvalue Yankees or whatever. Uh, maybe that's true. I often undervalue Yankees to the point where I miss out on them because I'm afraid that the playing time isn't there for them. And I think it played out a little bit like that for Mike Talkman. I mean, there's reasons to like Mike Talkman. There's lots of reasons to like Mike Talkman. He does a lot of things well, and he did them better when he got to uh, New York. But when everybody's healthy, he's not playing. Yeah, and I've found firsthand last year when he's not playing, he's difficult to roster, and then... You're holding on to a player who, if you have to throw him in your lineup, plays half as much as you want him to, unless the injury or two he needs to become a full-time guy actually play out. So you end up you end up with a guy who stays on your bench even when you need to play someone because the other outfielder on your bench probably plays more than Talkman does. Yeah, and it reminds me a little bit of the Rays. You know, you, the Rays, you have this... This you, this constant feeling that you know someone's only going to play four games this week. I do think with Urshela living in that pick one fifty range in early drafts, I'm not staying away from him at that price. I think I would love to know more about their plans for the offseason. If they do add two infielders, then that could be a problem. But I think I think their internal evaluations and what we see with our eyes with his defense is more in line with reality. I don't think he's a bad defender. I'm surprised the numbers uh, come out the way they do. So it's something I'd want to dig into a little bit more before fully committing. But in terms of what he's done as a hitter, I'm really not that skeptical, even with the barrel rate only being a little bit above average. I think I've seen enough growth to say, hey, this is real. He's in a good lineup. It's a great park. All those things really keep that floor pretty safe as long as the playing time doesn't fall out from the bottom on Urshela at this point. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's talk about some young players and broadly characteristics we're looking for that we think are going to age well. This is a conversation we probably should have had before I did the XFL auction over the weekend. It's a keeper league auction similar to Tout Wars and my team is probably still about a year away from really starting to make a push into a competitive window. So I was trying to find underpriced veterans that I can trade and young Keepable, interesting players who were underpriced. And I'm not sure that I nailed it. Um, I'm actually pretty convinced that I didn't. 
but we'll talk about process and some things that we look for in these circumstances. It works in, in redraft leagues too. Obviously, you're still looking for young players with growth potential there as well. Um, so as you're starting to put together the foundation of a young hitter, what stands out to you? What means the most to you with a young hitter as you're trying to look for someone who can still take a step or two forward in the future? Well, I found this really cool um, piece by Matt Hartzell on um, what's this on median, a medium uh, from the beginning of 2019. And he kind of went through the different aging curves uh, to look at uh, how the, how just different skills age. And we've talked here about all the time about how um, contact outside the zone ages. Uh, but he added in the wrinkle of sort of aging, um, hard hit rate and some other things. Um, and, uh, then looking at groups and, and how they age. Um, and he's got this table and it suggests, uh, quoting him here in order, it is best for hitters in order to age well, to hit the ball hard first, not chase pitches outside the strike zone. Second, hit the ball in the air. Third, make contact fourth, and then fifth, spray the ball to all fields. So, uh, I think that generally describes uh, the the, the check boxes that I go through when I'm looking at a young player. Unfortunately, hitting the ball hard is not necessarily something that we have data point on, but that's why we talk about max exit velo as being important for you know looking at a young player. If they have a decent max exit velo and they don't chase the pitches outside the zone, I'm already and I'm already involved. I'm interested. I'm looking at that player pretty hard. Yeah, I think that's a great starting point because it gives you an idea of, of patience and selectivity at the plate and it gives you a pretty good idea of just raw strength and those two things in concert are going to lead you to home runs or well-struck balls that at least become hits whether it's a just a single a double whatever it's still good that's a good combination of granular skills and they present generally very quickly we had a surprising young player in 2019 in Brian Reynolds who came in 16 home runs isn't like this league winning sort of player, but he had 16 home runs in 2019 hit 314 with a 377 OBP. He slugged 503 and he fell apart in 2020. And I don't think I realized how bad his 2020 was because I had him nowhere. Like I just ignored him completely in my drafts this past season and I started looking at the underlying numbers, and they really weren't that bad in 2019. Like if, if I'm honest about what I care about in a young player, Brian Reynolds did most of those things. I, I'm looking for a low K rate, a reasonably low K rate, 22% in his big league debut. That's certainly not bad. Showed some patience, 8.4% walk rate in that rookie season. You, know, you look at some of the X stats underneath the slash line. Uh, 300 XBA supported the 317 that he hit. It wasn't a complete fluke average-wise, even though he was a little bit fortunate. You know, you look at all these things and you see an 89.5 mile per hour average exit velocity. It almost made me think that there was potential for a little bit more power in the future. And man, it, it fell apart in him in a big way. Like even in a year in 2020, he barreled up more balls. His overall average exit velocity dropped two miles per hour. The K rate jumped uh, more than five percentage points, 27.4% K rate, but he did draw more walks as well. So it was a bit of a mixed bag, even though the results are terrible. And I bring him up because he's not old. Like, in, he 
may have been able to turn around that miserable 2020 if there were more time, more games for him to move through. So I guess this is kind of a, a follow-up question. When you look at a player like Reynolds, who maybe went through the adjustment phase more in 2020 than he did in 2019, which bit of what you saw are you more willing to buy into? The harsh 2020 or the encouraging first steps that he took in 2019? Yeah, I think at Reynolds in particular, I would look to his barrel rate and his hard hit rate and his max EV, uh, which were all steady, actually even had a better barrel rate in 2020. So in terms of the stat cast numbers, uh, he improved in those in that regard. And then um, I, I'd uh, take a look at his O swing and um, by a pitch info, it improved. Um, and, uh, by no matter what metric you look at, it's at least league average. So it's not necessarily, um, a big source of a problem for him. He, he doesn't live off of, uh, contact outside the zone either because he's slightly below average there. So it's not, he's not someone that should uh, fall apart because of his play discipline. Um, and his, uh, his batted ball stats uh, suggest that he had a, a poor year with regards to luck last year. So, um, you know, I I think he's absolutely a buy low, and I think he's really interesting in um, the types of strategies that I like to employ. And I think I used to kind of be one note, and I discovered that I think to to do better in dynasty leagues, you want to employ all three of these strategies. And so one strategy is um, if you're going to get youth, try to get the very top of the line youth. If you're going to buy high, buy the very highest. Identify the can't-miss type prospect that you think is totally worth it and go and get him. I've done that before with Ozzy Albies and Mookie Betts uh, and Cody Bellinger as prospects. And I think it's very rewarding because um, you do want to get youth. I used to only do the go find the Brian Reynolds types, right? Go find the uh, late-blooming starters types in, in pitching. Uh, go find the value in veterans because in dynasty leagues, people overvalue uh, youth too much, right? So you can do that. The problem is that you miss on top end talent. Top end talent was top end prospects. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can find a lot of good players. Like Brian Reynolds could be good again. He's not going to be uh, a star. And in order to get a star, sometimes you have to go get the youth. So I, as one strategy, I like to, when I want youth, I try to get exactly, I identify exactly who I want based on, you know, strikeout minus walk rates, what I can gather about hard hit rates, um, that sort of deal. That's one thing I'll do. Another thing I'll do is try to find the Brian Reynolds of leagues um, and, and do that. And then the last thing is, uh, I think, uh, continually try to compete which is a little bit along the lines of um, the uh, fine value in veterans, but um, things come together faster and slower than you might expect sometimes. So that if you, if you keep a representative team around, you might find, and you can be generally rebuilding or generally uh, building to win, um, but keep a, uh, keep some veterans around if only to sell them to people who need them during the season. You know what I mean? Don't, I, I really, I, I will never run out of lineup that's all prospects that take zeros and everything, even if the, the league settings allow me to do that. I just, it's it's against my nature. I will at least go find, you know, a bounce back Brian Reynolds to at least sell him for something. You know what I mean? So that's, those are my three kind of uh, uh, dynasty uh, strategies. I think there's a 
there's a case for the complete teardown, take the zeros approach in certain leagues where you you know you're not going to be able to make a lot of good trades for the young talent you need, where that's your only path to having the long-term top-end prospects you talked about in those circumstances. And again, those are deep, deep dynasty leagues full of sharp players. I am more inclined to try it there. This particular league is a 15-team keeper league. It's an auction. You know, minor leaguers are definitely held on to in big ways here because their salaries go up more slowly than players that you get in the auction. So there's a long-term benefit toward holding prospects and at least acquiring them while they're prospects and, and making them kind of long-term fixtures. So I think it makes it difficult to make trades. And the types of players that you can move are usually established veterans with a good track record that you know people say you know this actually is a big upgrade and i think if you completely dismiss getting those players as you're trying to become more competitive you are missing out on one of the few paths to improve your team in a situation like this one so like javi baez at 26 bucks in the auction that's an inflated price right I don't think Javi Baez will be on my next great team in this keeper league, but I do think I'll get a lot more from Javi Baez in a trade than I would have got if I had taken the 26 bucks I spent on him and, and bought five middling prospects. Yeah, and just added it to a couple of the guys in the bottom of the roster. So it is yeah. having that right sort of balance. I think that three-pronged approach you described is definitely in line with what I generally try to do. And the other thing that I did in this auction, other player I went after anyway, was, was a couple other bounce back guys, actually, a few of them, uh, Mitch Garver and Omar Narvaez, both. And a, a bit like the Brian Reynolds situation, you know, these guys are, are obviously not young. They are not high ceiling guys. They are much cheaper in redraft right now than they were this time a year ago. I, I think I just had to sit back and say, okay. We just saw a 60-game weird pandemic season. If I believed in these players just a few months ago, in the absence of something that would lead me not to believe in them anymore, I should still see them as good discounted auction targets. And you know, maybe Mitch Garver shares more time with Ryan Jeffers than, than I'd like, but for five bucks in the auction for a guy in a two-catcher league that had he been available last year would have probably been 18, 20 bucks because of inflation that seemed like a pretty obvious sort of target to me. You know, Narvaez in dollar days, I think that's a, a what could go right. I was kind of following the org's lead on this one. The Brewers could have non-tendered him. They didn't. They brought him back, and they've got a lot of catchers on the 40-man roster. So I think they're sort of doubling down on the analysis that led them to acquire him in the first place. And there's a good track record of a guy that gets on base and maybe unlocked more power than ever in 2019. So I want to see how that plays out over a full season in 21 in a great hitter-friendly ballpark. And then the other guy, Slater, that one was one where I, I don't think I realized just how good he was last year. And we're only talking about 104 plate appearances for Austin Slater with the Giants. There is uh, some interesting stuff that could happen in this outfield because we know Farhan Zaidi is not going to just sit back and watch the same players go out there every day and and be just kind of average. He's going to tinker. He's going to make waiver claims and small trades. And he might even be a little bit aggressive in free agency with some of the more interesting players who became available. But I thought there was more good than bad in the Slater profile to the point where I started to wonder if maybe he's another sort of late bloomer who doesn't fit the aging curves that we're accustomed to 
But now that he's getting an opportunity, he might actually be maybe not as good as Mike Yaz has been, but still that kind of player who can actually be a part of the next competitive Giants team. Yeah, I think one thing that people might miss when they look at Slater's profile is that the breakout began in 2019. Um, He had just absolutely no angle on his balls in play. I mean, he was a zero LA kind of guy where, uh, you know, two to 3% barrel rate the first couple of years, just absolutely probably in my mind screwed up by the Stanford swing in, in Stanford and had 61% ground ball rates. Um, and that's why I think, you know, when I listed that, that, that stuff that's important for young players, hit the ball in the air is good, but it's not necessarily, um, you know, it's not one or two. And even, uh, I think, I think I'd personally put it behind make contact. I think I would say hit the ball hard, not chase and make contact, put hit the ball in the air third, because there are players that do manage to change their batted ball profile. And you've got Austin Slater going from 61%, 63% ground ball rate to 52% last year with a 10% barrel rate, which is absolutely good, uh, to a 39, 40% ground ball rate last year, um, and a, and a 14% barrel rate. Now, I don't think he's going to keep the 14% barrel rate because with, we saw with Garver, there's going to be regression. But if the regression takes him back to around a 10% barrel rate, yo, that's good. Mm hmm. You know, there's something here. And what I don't understand here is his strikeout rates because I uh, I watched him a fair amount being out here and uh, seeing him at Stanford. And I think he has a good hit tool. So I don't know if hit tool is not is not captured for 100% in strikeout rate. That's probably true. Uh, but what you have here is sort of an under-the-radar hit had hit tool changed uh, batter bowl profile guy, you know? Um, and there's, that's a, there's a long story of guys like that. I mean, we pointed out, uh, on this podcast about Jesse Winker was going to do that and then he did it, you know? Um, and so I think it's, there's some similarities to Winker, even though Winker, um, had better strikeout rates. Yeah. I do think when you have the foundation of a good hit tool and you start making changes to your swing, you have a chance of fighting back against the potentially increased strikeout rate you're going to deal with while you're making those changes to your swing. I think yeah. trying to launch the ball can come at the price of striking out more. And there's probably a year or two, in some cases, it takes to really get fully acclimated to that swing and to make the hit tool you had kind of work for you with your new approach. So uh, I just I saw way more things to like than I expected when I was digging into some, some players prior to that auction. Austin Slater, not a guy I was thinking about at all until I uh, started looking at some of the the up arrows if i'm looking at this page uh, yeah it's the it's the baseball savant player page if you scroll down toward the bottom they have a year-to-year changes section on there now and it's awesome it's got about 15 different metrics that we talk about a lot and it gives you year over year improvement or decline so you can see the trends really easily uh, so just another small wrinkle put into a site i use all the time that makes it even more User friendly, but he definitely fits into the, you know, cheapy Brian Reynolds. Hopefully, he's more of a top 150 player than a top 300 guy. I don't think I'm getting a superstar, but the type of end game flyer that you want to take because you could turn a four or five dollar late auction buy into a fifteen dollar guy, and you need a few of those at the bottom of your roster if you're going to either make trades later or if you are going to make a run. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, you know, with the accelerated timeframes for prospects in today's game, you know, some of the guys that you and and with the 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 all the things we can't know about uh, how fast people are going to move through the minors right now. Right. Like we don't even know. Like if you had a guy who was in high A before 2020, where is he going to go next year? Um, <laughs> so right now, I think it behooves people to be like, well, you know, people might get moved fast. If they if teams have no money, they they just the 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 rush to get a full team for uh, of guys on the minimum is <laughs> is going to go across the league, and so that might mean uh, more prospects make it to the big leagues faster. Um, then the time frame changes, and then all of a sudden you're happy uh, to slot in Brian Reynolds as your fourth outfielder because Julio Rodriguez and Jared Kellenich are playing in the big leagues. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's always worth, uh, and, and what you'll find too in dynasty drafts, whether it be auction or snake, um, I, I think these, these types of veterans, uh, ex- like stay there longer or, or are cheaper than they should be. Everyone's sort of chasing the, you know, Julio Rodriguez is when, uh, there's a Brian Reynolds to be had for, uh, a cheap price. Um, and so you have to, that's why, that's why it's the three strategies blended together because, um, if you just go full hog uh, into the prospects, I think you're 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 in the crab bucket with everybody else, and you're you're just all fighting for the top prospects. If you can, you know, keep an eye on which you know which prospect can fall to you, or which prospect isn't doesn't cost them, you know, um, at the very top of the, the very top of the line, um, while also just sort of grabbing veterans as they fall. That's that's generally been my strategy. Also threw a five dollar bid in on David Dahl late because I, you know, there you go. just disagree with the Rockies at every possible turn. Uh, but again, we've talked about Dahl ten percent better than league average every year before twenty twenty. Had his spleen removed. That was a big part of Friday's show. I think he might end up with a contender. I don't think the only interest in him is going to be from you know teams like the Tigers and the Pirates and teams that are a few years away hoping to uh, bolster their organizational quality of position players right I mean like he'd fit in those places but if you told me that David Dahl is going to sign with the Braves I'd say well that makes a lot of sense that he lands in a great lineup and you know doesn't have to deal with the difficulty of going on the road from Colorado I, I think we've learned a lot about that over the last few years that as much as not hitting in Coors sucks you make up some of that by not having to go in and out of Denver and struggle with the the road adjustments that a lot of those hitters have dealt with over the last several years. Jeff Zimmerman has a fun little uh, uh, easy to remember uh, sort of mantra for for like guys leaving Colorado. It's not as easy as don't just look at the road split. And say that's what he's going to do. So you know David Dahl's road split is you know two forty eight average, uh, three oh two. OBP 420 slugging, that's not uh, going to move the needle much in most leagues. But um, the actual sort of because of that, what happens to you when you leave town and the whole just the whole way course can screw you in all these different ways. Um, uh, Jeff Zimmerman found that you can take uh, three times the road plus one times home hmm. um, uh, to kind of guess what they'll do in the future. So. Um, yes, that does mean that he's more likely to hit closer to 250, 
uh, and so closer to 420, but you still have to add in that awesome, at least one part of that awesome home split of 318, 361, 556, which describes his upside. So um, I think that uh, the only thing that worries me is the team that knows the most about his medicals, let him go. And we know that his medicals are a disaster in general. We also know that he had shoulder surgery and that last year his max EV dropped four miles per hour and his barrel rate was the worst of his career and his hard hit rate almost cut in half. So maybe it's just one bad year and, he, you know, more time away from that surgery um, will will make him better. That's what the bet is going to be. Uh, but... Um, it is also concerning that the Rockies, who have who are on top of most of this, or like are the closest to this, uh, decided that they were going to let him go. If it were the Dodgers who made that decision, I would stay away. But because <laughs> of the org making the decision, I'm convinced that they have it backwards. I mean, we're talking about a guy that had a barrel rate of about nine to ten percent in eighteen and nineteen, so that's a pretty big drop, as you mentioned, but. Health, definitely a concern, and that's why he was cheap. But if he were staying in Colorado, he would have been a $15 player in this auction. And I got him for five, not knowing where he's going to play. But I did think there was there was ceiling with each of those guys, bounce-back potential with each of those guys. And I think in leagues where your top prospects are already kept or they're drafted separately in reserves, that's the sort of mindset you need to have as you're rounding out your roster, looking for those what-could-go-right sorts of players. I'd like to point to a real quick little um, a guy who's gotten uh, who's now more interesting in keeper leagues and dynasty leagues, uh, Sam Hilliard um, in in Colorado. Um, if you look at his steamer projections, you will not be impressed. Um, he's projected for 236, 298, 421, uh, the equivalent of about 19 homers and 12 stolen bases uh, with the 236 average. I think you'd think oh, this is a deep league guy automatically. However, two things stand out to me. Better walk rates than he had last year in the past. Uh, better OBP in his first go at the league. Um, and Steamer legit told me, and I repeated this on this podcast here, that they're looking to include more stat cast in their numbers going forward. Um, and that's important when you're looking at the small season. And when I look at the stat cast for Sam Hilliard, I see a really good barrel rate. It was 13% in his first go, 10% last year. I could see it uh, being in between those two, which would be very good. I see a pretty good max EV. It was better in his first year, 114, but even 111 last year is good. Hard hit rate, uh, 44% last year. So this is a guy who hits the ball really hard. He runs really hard. Uh, he's an athlete. And if there's at all any improvement in his strikeout and walk rates, um, I could I think we could see a guy who hits like 250, 350. Um, with like a 200 plus ISO. So now you're talking about a guy who's going to hit 250 with a 350 on base percentage, something like 25 homers and 15 stolen bases because he'll be playing mostly full time. And when I look at that outfield, he's, other than Blackman, he's the only guy I want to play out all the time. Yeah, you have to play Sam Hilliard if you're the Rockies at this point. There would be absolutely no excuse not to. Uh, I was actually on him in 2020 when things were more crowded. So. Definitely in in 2021 with Dahl out of the equation. Uh, five for five as a base dealer so far in his career. 13 homers and just a, uh, 201 plate appearances. So yeah. there's I think everything is good. No doubt about the, the actual tools. I, I do think the 
The downside that he brings is you know low average, like 300-ish OBP, kind of like the career numbers so far, 236, 308, 527 to this point, but he could be better than that. Uh, he's a little old, so if you're thinking about aging curves and development... But this, I mean, he's, it's, he's right in the middle of his peak. He's 26. Right. This is the peak year, so this, he could really have his peak year right now. We did get a question uh, about aging curves. This came from Cameron, and he was wondering, for players who are late breakout players, how do aging curves differ? For example, what do you guys think of Teoscar Hernandez, who seemingly broke out in his age 27 season? Does this mean he is likely going to regress from here on out, or does it differ from him because of such a stark breakout? It's a really good question. It's very difficult to answer. And I've tried, I've reached out to some people. I've looked through. That's why I ended up with that uh, piece that I, that I mentioned earlier. Like, you know, I've been, I've been looking around and I have not found anything definitive on this. So I cannot tell you an answer that just says, yeah, this is what's going to happen. But I can tell you the way that I reason about this because I've thought about this for a long time, not just this week where, you know, what do you do with these players that, that especially if you have these dynasty strategies that I'm talking about, you're going to end up with players like this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because, because you're, you're trolling the wires for older players and you're looking for opportunity and you're looking for guys and you just picked up Tasker because he hit the ball hard in 2019 and he had a chance to, to play in that outfield or whatever, you know? So, um, you'll, you'll end up with these guys that pop up and the patron saint for me is Ryan Ludwig. We talked about him a fair amount. Ryan Ludwig was with the Cardinals had a breakout season. Uh, but just in talking with you, we were talking about um, who, who were some of the names we were talking about in terms of late breakouts. Jose Bautista, I think, is maybe yeah. the the best of the fantasy stars of the last 10 years or so. And and I think that just I think those are two good names because they describe the range of, of possibilities. Ryan Lukovic is what I what I would had the career that I would tell you that Teoscar might have, which is that uh, the late breakout came because uh, he had to be closer to his peak in order to uh, even be useful, in, in order to get the starting job. He had to be closer to his peak in order to get the starting job. And so as he falls off of that peak, he goes back to not starting quicker even than you might expect or or um, that you're just looking at the very top of his aging curve. So once he goes back down again, he's just not useful, just like he was when before he was 30. Uh, and that describes basically what happened with Ryan Ludwig. So he was a league average player. His breakout season came at 30 years old uh, with the Cardinals, and he had a five-win season. He had a two-win season the next year, and then he only had one more season where he was above average. So he turned 30, had a breakout season, and so you might say, whoa, this is the new Ryan Ludwig. He had 30, 37 homers. Everything looks right, you know. Um, you know, it wasn't all Babbitt fueled, even though it kind of was, but like, you know, you know, we, we, you could argue your way into it and be like, this is the new line Ludwig. Uh, well, it went away pretty fast. So that's what I would think. Then you look at Jose Bautista and he had that excellent season at 30 as well, right? Yeah. I think his first great season was then, I think we started to see signs that something was different. In like 29, when he was 29. Oh, eight, oh, nine. There were little flashes, maybe, but uh, it was really 2010. It was that age 29 season. 13 homers to 54. He did not go gently into the night like Ryan Ludwig. I mean, he just rattled off 
you know, a short peak type, uh, like near Hall of Fame short peak. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> he won't he won't be in the Hall of Fame discussion because the rest of his career didn't work out. But from thirty to thirty five, thirty six, he was a perennial All Star. You know, and it's possible to Oscar, especially since there are some things in common where. Like the defense wasn't that great for Bautista, and the place that he found for himself was basically DHing. Um, and th- the big, I think the big complaint about Teoscar, uh, other than the strikeout rate, is the defense. Um, but if they find him a home at uh, first or, or at uh, DH or something, um, you know, the bat has been above average for four straight years. And. Uh, he did just have a really good year. If I would have been happy to acquire a player like this in these dynasty leagues, I would also be the first to trade them away. <laughs> Is how I put it. Like I don't, I would not count on Teoscar Hernandez continuing this for many more years. I think the other example that kind of popped into my head when we were talking about Batista is Luke Voigt. and Max Muncie. I think kind of fits into this same sort of recent bucket as well. I picked up Voigt. On Nelson Cruz, the waiver wire in a 20 team dynasty league in RDI. Mm. And I was so sure that it wasn't going to last over a full season. I flipped him to our friend Clay Link for Willie Adames. Um, so I think Clay won that trade, at least to this point. And maybe Adames' 2020 gives me some hope of steering out of it eventually. But it's easy to give up on those players in a trade because they feel like found money when you yeah. hit. You know, in for every Luke Voigt and Max Muncy, you know, you probably have two or three guys who do fall on their face, who do because of their lack of defensive value end up in a part time role and wash out of the league pretty quickly. You do end up with more Ludwig type players, guys that you thought could be regulars but just didn't end up being regulars and you know, you don't want to be left holding the bag with players like that either. That was my thinking anyway when I traded Voigt away and you know, two years after that trade I see Voigt a bit differently now, but hey, look, we all saw 700 more plate appearances. We, we all got more information. So without the benefit of that, I think I was at least right by process to be skeptical of how valuable he was going to be as a 27-year-old, a then 27-year-old coming off of this monster partial season. Yeah. I guess the, the, the through line that um, is meaningful here though is um, and, and this is actually a positive for Tasker is that if you can hit the snot out of the ball teams will find a place to put you if you're kind of elite at that and so the question is will how you know how long will he be elite at batting to the point where they'll just find him a place to just bat um, but the, the the person to think about to some extent might be Nelson Cruz uh, who had a late late breakout was a bad defender didn't seem like there was a place for him until he was just the awesome DH every year. Yeah, I mean, I remember Nelson Cruz also being pretty injury-prone, always dealing with hamstring injuries and things in his late 20s during his time with the Rangers. I look back, though, and I remember, I distinctly remember part of the issue with Nelson Cruz early in his career was that people said he struck out too much. He was only striking out... 26.1% of the time (laughs) in his worst strikeout season back then. And that was too much. Nelson Cruz striking out. He struck out 38% one year. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I know tolerance for strikeouts has increased. I know that strikeouts are just up in general. So 26% 12 to 15 years ago might be roughly the same as striking out 
30% now. But, I mean, Teoscar Hernandez has only had one season, and it was a very, very small run in 2016 with the Astros where he's been under 30% with his K rate. So I think that's a key. He's not a big walker, you know, 6.8% this year. I guess 9.7% in 2019 gives you a little bit of hope. But if I had Teoscar Hernandez in a keeper league or a dynasty league and I had an offer that interested me, I'd be much more inclined to trade him away than to ride it out in most situations. Doesn't doesn't scream like a building block to me. Uh, you know, in terms of the things that we've talked about, um, he's not that great at not reaching at pitches outside the zone. It's part of why uh, he strikes out so much. He's not as terrible as you might expect, actually. Uh, but contact rate matters, and his uh, his contact rates are are poor. I mean, you know, uh, zone contact matters, and he makes contact ten percent. 10 percentage points below league average in the zone. So uh, he doesn't, he does not have uh, a great hit tool. I, I'm assuming if we know, if we didn't even know what a hit tool is. I mean, I'm looking back at the old fan graphs grade. This is from 2017. They had him at a 45, 45 with a future 50, which isn't bad. It's not his best foot forward. That doesn't point to another level coming that you're going to get power, this big raw improvement. power and speed. Yeah. Although they, they said 50, 55 field. And I think that ended up being not true. Give that extra, you know, five or ten from field to power. I think would, yeah, that'd yeah. be game power, especially is you know pretty clearly something he has. But if you're like a competitive team, um, you know, keep him. I mean, he's 28. The next couple of years should be okay. It's just I think that he he could be likely to age poorly at sort of 31, 32, and not necessarily wanting to have him around. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the difference between Teoscar Hernandez and Domingo Santana, who just signed to go play in Japan. Mm is pretty small, or at least it's a smaller difference than you think. That's a good pull. And Domingo Santana had that great year with the Brewers. It was before they acquired Yelich, I believe, was the year, 2017. And then they added Kane and Yelich, and everyone said, oh, they'll make it work. They'll they'll find playing time. I think they knew that that approach wasn't necessarily going to work in the long run, and that was with a better foundation in terms of walk rate, too. Domingo Santana had double-digit walk rates in three consecutive seasons. Bad defender, big power, a little bit of speed. Tasker has a little bit, slightly better sort of batter ball profile in terms of, you know, barrel rates and stuff. But More yeah. barrels? Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's the difference. Right, so Teoscar Hernandez is one very disappointing season away from playing in Japan. And I think that's a more likely outcome based on how teams measure players than another level, another step forward at the plate and you know a future top 50 fantasy player. I don't see that happening. I don't see another level from Tasker Hernandez. No, I don't think so. There's going to be some regression. Even if he's good, there's going to be some regression. Got uh, a couple more questions to get to before we go. How about a pitching question? This one comes from Ryan. He writes, hey guys, just had a thought on Dustin May and wanted to hear what you think. Everyone in the fantasy community seems to be off of May because he doesn't miss enough bats. Here's the thing. He checks so many boxes. Spin rates off the charts, elite velo, prospect pedigree, can attack hitters vertically and horizontally, top three organization in terms of developing talent. What is there not to like? He hasn't optimized his pitch mix yet and is still extremely young. It seems a bit extreme to pass on a guy because of his rookie year swinging strike rate. Additionally, looking at it from a gambling perspective, when something looks enticing and the public is betting heavily the other way, 
Those are the best kinds of bets. He also includes May has a 158 ADP, which is from those early NFBC Draft Champions League. We talked about May quite a bit around the postseason. I think the tagline on Dustin May, if you turn him into a movie poster, is why doesn't he strike more guys out? Because he is filthy. He is fun to watch. And I mean, I agree with Ryan's general sentiment here. I think that 150 range is kind of a sweet spot where you can take a chance and be handsomely rewarded with an SP1 or an SP2. Or you can buy Nick Pavetta, the incarnate version of the Zonk card from Let's Make a Deal. Wait, what? (laughs) They're not near each other in ADP. No, not current Pavetta. I'm talking about Pavetta from like two or three years ago. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were saying that they were going near each other in drafts right now. I was like, okay, that makes it obvious. I'll take May. (laughs) No, Pavetta's ADP is 480. So he's he's an absolute endgame flyer right now. But that's the type of miss you can have in that range. I do have to to pick uh, uh, just... A little bit at the at the question suggesting that he can work both horizontally and vertically. I mean, the difference between him and somebody like a Walker Bueller is is fairly intense when it comes to vertical movement because Walker Bueller has about ten inches of ride. Speaking of Brooks baseball language here, ten inches of ride on his fastball, and then like you know eight inches of drop on the on the curveball. So you're talking about eighteen to twenty inches of differential there. And May has uh, three inches of quote unquote ride on his sinker because it's it's more of a dropping pitch and five inches on his curve. So you're talking about eight inches differential there. So Walker Bueller essentially has twice the drop on his curveball uh, because everything's sort of measured off of the fastball. Um, so May has intense side to sideness uh, that maybe he can figure out how to uh, do how to capture, but. What we found in our research is that vertical movement is more important, and he actually kind of suffers when it comes to vertical movement, um, at least when it comes to sort of the stratification of vertical movement and how different his pitches are from the vertical movement standpoint. Now, because of that spin rate, maybe he changes something and captures uh, some spin efficiency on the four-seamer and changes the profile on that pitch, or maybe he just learns to... Um, work the sinker cutter and 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 um, and curve in ways he hasn't done yet. Uh, work side to side, improve his command on side to side, and, and get people out that way. Um, I do uh, think uh, that once everyone agrees on something and the whole league starts designing pitches that way and and looking for pitches that look like that, that there's always going to be room for like, hey, what about Sergio Romo? Um, or, you know, at some point, maybe what about Dustin May? Like, why, why can't he succeed just because he looks different? So at some point being different is good. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I just wouldn't, um, I don't know that I found that everybody is, is out on Dustin May. I think if I tried to go get Dustin May in a dynasty league right now, I would face a pretty hefty acquisition cost. So that's why I haven't, you know, put the stamp of, you know, let's go in a different direction of approval here on Dustin May. Let me ask you, uh, it's kind of a philosophical question, but I'll use an example. Uh, If you're looking at May versus Mike Soroka, another guy who doesn't strike as many hitters out as we would all like in the fantasy community, when you look at Soroka's arsenal, both of these guys are good at controlling walks too, so I think it's a, a fair sort of comp. 
Who do you think has the better stuff or the better arsenal in terms of having the best chance to increase their strikeout rate going forward? I think Soroka, um, because uh, he could increase his slider usage. Um, and right now, 24% slider usage, I think he could push that all the way up to 35-40% uh, by the time you know he's older. Um, and I think he will push that number as he ages. And I know that Dustin May also throws a sinker a lot and um, could do that. But I think that basically I think Mike Soroka's slider is better than Dustin May's curveball. And Dustin May is already throwing, um, this past season, already throwing breaking balls for nearly 40% of the time if you count them together. Yeah, so you don't really have that ability to amp up the usage a whole lot. Not as much. I mean, Soroka's still throwing 64% fastballs between his four-seam and sinker, so I think he could, over time, change that up a little bit. Um, you know, one other thing that uh, makes Soroka good is his changeup, and the changeup does not is not is the for pitches is the worst correlated pitch to overall swing strike rate and strikeout rate. So the changeup is still kind of used for soft contact, um, and he has a straight change, which is even rarer. So um, he could be one of those guys that just uh, does a little better than his strikeout rate. Um, you know, I, I got you know I got into it with with Braves Twitter uh, for just suggesting that there might be some regression coming for their pitchers um, because all of their you know their young pitchers Anderson, Soroka, and Freed are all projected to be worse next year. Um, that's just how projections work. I was just bringing out the idea that there was a fair amount of uncertainty in this Braves bullpen because of, I mean, this Braves uh, rotation because they have a lot of untested guys and then they have a lot of really old guys that have some injury concerns. So that's like, you know, between the two, there's a fair amount of risk, I think more than most. However, if you were going to bet on one of the trio of three young pitchers in Atlanta, it's Sirocco for me because you have an explanation of how to proceed with a lower strikeout rate. For me, it's that straight change. When you look at Ian Anderson, the changeup does not have the characteristics of a good changeup, either straight or power change. And so I wonder how he's going to keep striking people out when his changeup doesn't look that good and his curveball doesn't look that good. I don't know what's going on with Ian Anderson. And then Max Fried is a two-breaking ball, uh, more conventional pitcher. He should he should strike people out. If he doesn't strike more people out, his numbers are going to get worse. Um, and he doesn't have, you know, we'll see what the velocity is next year. So Soroka's the guy that I would say that I would bet on to beat his peripherals of all the guys I mentioned. Interesting, too, that Soroka and May have similar ADPs, of course. Soroka coming off an Achilles injury, I think there's an understandable desire to wait and see where things are at come February with his recovery before going overboard. But I do think may at the price is interesting as Ryan pointed out. I'm not avoiding him at that price. I'm not going to necessarily at this point, look at him and say, you have What's to the take would you there. rather game. So you're saying Soroka's there. Who else is there? Soroka's there. May's there. And Ooh, we got a few other interesting names here. We have Tristan McKenzie in this range. We have Frankie Montas in this range. We have Patrick Corbin, who's quickly becoming a green eggs and ham kind of player for me. So probably not going Corbin out of this group. Uh, Charlie Morton for his return to Atlanta goes in this range. Oh, man. So the old guys all had like a minus one plus uh, tick in velocity last year. 
And Morton kind of got his back at the very end, right? Like that was the, the yeah, silver lining. Yeah, but that's a sort of playoff adrenaline situation. <laughs> I'm not. I don't know how comfortable I am baking that one into next year. So the old guys have definite markers against them. And then McKenzie uh, lost Velo over every start, start over start, and you know looks like he weighs 110 pounds. I love the org's ability to develop pitching. Like I will rarely bet against and Cleveland. The stuff is nice, and the stuff is actually. I think the stuff for McKenzie is better than than Plesac and Savali for sure. I do worry about McKenzie holding velocity over a season, a full season, especially. He couldn't even do it in a twenty game season because that body it's so thin. But he, he could get stronger. He could bulk up. He could add ten or fifteen pounds of muscle between now and the start of the season, and those concerns would be. Would be ease. I mean, the other guys that go kind of just below this range, it seems like there's a pretty big drop off here. You have Tyler Molly, Chris Bassett, and Herman Marquez as the next three. A couple more interesting names: Savale and Javier. Go a little bit later than that. Well, yeah, it's always it's always a moving thing. Do you invest if it's an auction? Do you invest the money in the Soroka level, May level pitcher, um, or do you do it in a bat there and take uh, take Molly for less and? Um, and you can do that in a, in a snake draft too. Wait, wait for Molly or 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 take or jump it both. I think I would I would want actually one of that group and Molly. You know what I mean? I think I would. I think they're tier. They're different enough in tiers that I would want one of these better pitches along with uh, Tyler Molly. Um, I would rank them just going off the top of my head right now. I think I would go Soroka, May, McKenzie, Montas. That is very similar to the order I have them in, but I have Montas a little higher. I have Montas just below Soroka. Montas McKenzie. You have Montas ahead of Soroka. I got Montas behind Soroka, but and ahead, ahead of, of May. May right now. Yeah. Yeah. Risky, though. It is, it's just weird for me that, like, I understand there were some, some health concerns, and um, he did, the movement on a slider did get better over the course of the season for Montas, and that could be all that it was. That he just lost the slider with the back injury, um, but it is weird for me that he had such great velocity in 2020 and such poor results. Yeah, uh, it's a an interesting chunk of the rankings and of the ADP though, because you throw in David Price, who didn't pitch in 2020. I'm kind of intrigued by him in that range. I liked him a lot going to the Dodgers. I thought that was a a nice get for them. So, assuming he's fine coming off of a year of inactivity or not pitching in games anyway, I think I'm kind of in on David Price in this same cluster. Thanks for the question, Ryan. Let's get to our last question. This one comes from Jared. Jared's in the process of putting together a new startup dynasty league with about 20 teams, looking for some unique ideas with salaries, contracts, uh, leaving the entire player universe open, making it half snake draft, half auction. So he's wondering if either of us play in a fun league with unique settings that we'd be willing to share. Ideally, this will be a true dynasty league and not a keeper league. So, you know, you play in a few long-term leagues. What wrinkles would you suggest that uh, Jared should have for his new dynasty league? I think you want to think about tankers. I think you want to think about how you incentivize everyone to try most years and what you do with um, the empty lineup characters, if it's fine with you. If, if, if it's fine with you, then just let it happen. 
But if it's not fine with you, then there are things like second half tournaments. Uh, the prospect pick is different. You're, 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 you're like the, the order for the prospect pick is different than the order for the redraft. Um, maybe the second half winner gets the first prospect pick so that, um, you know, there's different ways you can play around with it to incentivize every team to try. Uh, you can even just put in the rules. Everyone has to feel the lineup. You can have, um, high plate appearance and innings pitch limits, um, that, uh, with some penalties, if they don't make, if they don't get, you know, to 750 innings and a certain amount of plate appearances from their lineups that they have to pay double next year. Uh, one thing I've seen that's interesting is you have graduated payments where, um, you know, if first place gets, uh, you know, $200, uh, that last place is paying, you know, 50 to 75 of that. And 11th place is paying 50 of that. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a way where the worse you are in the standings, the more you're paying. I'd like the open universe for the player pool. I'm only in one league that has that where literally anybody playing baseball is eligible to be drafted as a prospect. Like if you had a kid in your neighborhood that you thought was going to be awesome someday and he's playing little league, like you can, you can draft that kid in this league. (laughs) It's a funny wrinkle. If you're like Tim McLeod and you watch a lot of baseball from Japan and Korea and you're Uh. familiar with the posting system and what those players are going to do, you could be a year or two ahead of those guys posting in a league like that. And that gives people a different way of building rosters. I mean, I think the open universe player pool, it takes a special group of owners to make it worthwhile. I think if you only have a couple people that would even dig that deep, it kind of does more harm than good. But if you know that the people in your league are all really into digging into every possible corner for players, I think it's cool that if you're in a keeper league, you know Adley Rutschman was rostered before the Orioles drafted him. That's fun. That, that gives you more incentive to keep looking at different areas to make your team better. Yeah, yeah. There's different, yeah. There's different ways you can make an impact, basically, uh, and find players. I, I definitely agree with you uh, that I like that. Um, the other thing is, how do you uh, how do you try to incentivize movement, player movement? And one of the, my favorite platforms, AutoNew, is um, has arbitration in it, and basically your players that you've got. Um, all of them kind of become more expensive year over year. That's, that's, uh, fairly standard, uh, in a lot of dynasty leagues. But, uh, then there's like this voting process where your league mates actually can be like, yo, he has Mike Trout for, you know, 15 bucks. I'm going to, I'm going to put an extra three bucks on that. Um, and so your very best players, uh, just like in arbitration, uh, become more expensive quicker and are harder to retain. Um, I like that because I don't like it when one uh, team somehow has an outfield of like Trout, Acuna, Soto or something. You know? <laughs> and, and it happens. They, and it happens. They, there's a consolidation factor where teams uh, pull together the best uh, talent because they're trying. Um, and then all of a sudden you, you look up and you're like, how am I supposed to do against that? Um, and so I, I, my favorite leagues, the, my favorite league that I talk about here all the time is Devils Rejects, and there is actually no penalty for um, the players getting older, and you could actually just have a super team for a long time. But the 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 people in this team have been in this league have been in it for so long that um, 
they tend not to like there's so much trading they tend not to hold on to any sort of super team uh for that long so um maybe it won't be that big a deal if you think that everybody's going to trade a lot but i like baking in uh something when it comes to uh inflation basically yeah i given the choices and i realize jared doesn't want to do a keeper league he wants to do a dynasty league where you keep everybody i like the keeper leagues with salaries more than i like straight dynasty leagues because it does force some of that long-term decision making eventually the contracts roll over you do lose players you do have to make a decision to commit to young players at a certain point you can't just kind of hold them in perpetuity i think that it resembles some things that teams have to go through in their evaluation process that i really like uh, the problem is you start to get to a point where the rules get unnecessarily complicated you know you have extensions and you have only certain players who are eligible for extensions you only have certain players who can be cut like those types of things do get a little bit messy so i understand why keeping it simple in dynasty is also appealing to a lot of people so uh, half snake half auction I think that gets pretty messy. I feel like auction is good if you're going to hold the salaries going forward. Right. If you're not, I I don't think you want to have an auction element in a keeper or a dynasty. I do like with auction, though, you have a a price tag on that player. And so it becomes easy to do some sort of inflation. Mm -hmm. Right. So so eventually somebody will get untenable, even if you bought. Um, you know, somebody before they were popular and you've got them at 15, like at some point you'll have some rules where that, that player will be much more expensive. So, um, I, I think the auction plus inflation is a good, is a good way to go. But something you said earlier, um, messy auction and snake. And if you have too many rules and too many things in too many places, it gets messy. Then nobody wants to commish. Nobody wants to do the thing where they have, you know, oh, everybody has. Uh, did you check your minor league pro- protection list? I don't want to check it. Are, are all your guys under? No. Did everybody check it? Did everybody do the thing? And where is the master sheet? I don't know. Do I do I have the master? Oh, I have the master sheet, don't I? And then, you know, like nobody really wants to do that. It's hard enough getting everybody to pay the <laughs> the the the, uh, the tithe, you know, everyone, everyone to pay the dues. You know, there's uh, you don't want to add more layers on top of that of wrangling people and trying to herd cats. Would you if you're going to have penalties in your league, would you have people pay more up front and then just give money back to those last place teams? Or would you really just make a point to only put people in the league who you know are good for the penalty money later on? Because that becomes that's the only downside to the. I like having penalties for being stuck in the bottom of a keeper league. It means you're not doing your job. You're not turning your roster effectively. You're not either. You're not making pickups or you're not making smart trades to help your team. There should be a penalty for that because you're making it easier for other teams in the league to do well when you have teams that are not trying or not doing a good job. It's true. It's risk not to do it before the season. You want to do it with people you're sure about but the easiest way to do it is to say at the end of the season hey jim you owe bob 40 bucks <laughs> right um and you have basically like four or five that's how i was in one league with a friend where at the end of the season there'd be a big email and he would say oh bobby bob did this by picking this guy and you know he was great and this and this and uh, at the very end he would say Okay, Bob, you owe this person 40, this person owes this person 40, this person owes this person 50. There's only about four or five lines on there because it's basically the bottom paying the top. And there's a bunch of people in the middle who don't pay and don't do anything. Um, and um, it, it worked out okay. 
So it can be done, but there's it personal really responsibility on there, right? Yep. Bob, you owe Jim forty dollars, and then you kind of get a little yeah. help as the commish. Like those people can put some pressure on to collect. Right. You don't have to do it all yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> they want their forty dollars, and they know who owes it to them. Right. So if Jim wants to send Moose and Rocco after Bob, that's you know that's that's on Jim's hands. It's not on yours. So I'll look the other way. Like, well, he owed him forty bucks. So there you go. Hopefully that helps, Jared. And uh, obviously this was a nice, fun, long episode. If you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you took a few minutes to do that, lots of you have done it. Thank you to the many of you who left us a nice rating and review on Twitter. You can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening.